You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. So the other day, I'm changing the light bulbs in the dining room lamp fixture. I open it up. There are all these dead bugs in there. It's a, it's, it's a bug graveyard. And I just sort of wonder, where did all these bugs come from? Were they born in there? So clearly, there's a whole lot more life in my house than I'm aware of. I'm hoping they'll help pay the mortgage. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. In this episode, we knew microbes had you covered, but now we're learning that they and other tiny organisms leave no space unoccupied. From your mattress to your books to the supposedly squeaky clean hot bathwater, your home is a living wilderness. Life is so adaptive and determined that even a 40,000-year spell in deep freeze doesn't stop it. So set down the fly swatter and leave the bleach alone. Embrace the diversity and amazing resilience of mini fauna and microfauna that keep appearing in the most unexpected places. And boy, are they resilient. It's Rip Van Winkle Worm. The bottom line is that you're never alone. But we now know more about the company you keep. And I'm not referring to the company you're aware of keeping. Other humans, dogs, ferrets, imaginary friends. But to be fair, we didn't know most of your companions existed until recently. It's not just our bodies that are covered with microbial life with other life. But each place we spend time is also filled with life, even if we don't see that life. And... For a long time, we neglected all of that life. And so even though it's the life where we spent most of our time exposed to, we really didn't have a good sense of what was there. But now we have a better sense. There's a lot to cover, or should I say there's a lot covering us. Microbes are only the beginning. Is that confusing? Well, let's make a clean start. The bathroom is one of the few places where you can get a little privacy, right? Standing under that spray of water behind the shower curtain, even more. But now ecologist Rob Dunn tells us that's not exactly true. From the sink, the floor, and, well, that thing through which the water falls, your bathroom is fully occupied. So I'm going to pause this shower here until I know what I'm getting into. What exactly is living in the pipes of our shower heads, Rob? Um, <laughs> what... A wondrous biodiversity. Uh, but so if you unscrew the shower head and you look into the pipe, what you'll almost always see, and it's, it's there even if you don't see it, is a kind of scum, a gunk, that scientists, so as not to say gunk, call a biofilm. And this is a kind of little apartment that microbial species team up together and they make out of their own excrement. And so it's kind of an apartment they poop to protect themselves. And so it's there. 
And it's a film. It's actually pretty thick and, and, and stable, isn't it? It is thick and stable, and that's why the microbes make it. Because if you imagine trying to live in a shower head, there's not much food in the water that's coming through the shower head. It's dry sometimes. It's wet sometimes. Sometimes the water that comes through the shower head is under extraordinary pressure. And so this is kind of a protective layer that they can live in and slowly extract what comes by. It can be quite thick and is typically visible. And it's a manifestation of really complex processes that are happening in your water and every bit of water around the world that we've kind of ignored. And that's why you say for anyone who's thinking, okay, anyone who wants to run to their shower head right now and unscrew it and, and scrub inside the pipe, just hang on because there's a lot more to this story. You have to hand it to these guys. These microbes could be called extremophiles because they're living in a place that is alternatively wet and dry, which resembles the microbes that have evolved in swamps. They have created a yeah. habitat out of something that is pretty difficult to live in. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really pretty amazing. I mean, if you think about water in general, like tap water or bottled water, any water that you ever touch has microbes in it. And they're having to deal with really extreme conditions. And so if we can distance ourselves from the reality that this is spraying down upon us when we shower, from an evolutionary perspective, I mean, this is a pretty amazing thing that they're able to eke out a livelihood in these conditions. Is it just microbes that are spraying down on us when we shower? No. Um, so there are bacteria. <laughs> That's a knowing no. Um, there, there are bacteria, fungi, lots of protists. In some cases, there are crustaceans in tap water. There are eggs of parasites of underground fish, all kinds of things that are in there. The biofilms themselves tend to be dominated by bacteria and some protists, but what's in the water overall, yeah, it's, it's really quite complex. What is protist? What is a protist? Or it's an evolutionary grab bag of things that didn't fit anywhere else. And so they're, they're mostly single-celled organisms. They have a nucleus. They're what we call eukaryotes. And so they're sort of the kin of fungi and mammals and birds and, and all the rest. And not many people study them. And they include lots of really dangerous organisms. And they include a bunch of stuff that's totally not dangerous and totally ignored. And so they're in there, too. Could you see this? If we were to take a, a cup of our tap water or our shower water and, and peer into it, would we see all these creatures? So some of this you can see with the naked eye. So you can see part of the, the biofilm typically with your naked eye. And so we think about bacteria as being invisible, but often what they make is not invisible. I mean, it's a classic sort of grade school thing to look at uh, swamp water under a microscope. But if you look at tap water under a microscope, you can often see living organisms. Because it's such a hard lifestyle, their density is often quite low, and so you have to look more to find them, but they're there. There are some worms that are pretty close to visible. The crustaceans, some of them are actually quite large. So just hearing this, people are going to want to run and take a shower, but then they don't want to take a shower because tiny worms and eggs will be uh, falling on them. Rob, should we be worried about this, that when we shower, all these microbes and other critters are, are raining down on us? No, we, sh we shouldn't. And I, I think this is a super important point, which is that for the entire history of the existence of humans, for the entire evolutionary history of multicellular life, all of the substances around us have been full of life. And that's just sort of the default. Your water is alive. Your air is alive. The things you sit on are alive. And then the last hundred years or so, we've come to think of that as as something gross and vulgar. And really, it's just part of being connected to the rest of the living world. It's part of being alive yourself. And so, yes, life is going to shower down on you, and, and no, you shouldn't worry about it. And, and you make the point that the vast majority of species in our homes, microbial species included in that, are not only harmless, they may be beneficial, and they're certainly not pathogenic, most of them. So about 50 species of bacteria globally are sort of regularly problematic. And that's out of up to 100,000, I forget what the most recent number of species of bacteria in houses. And so the maximum number of those species that are problematic is 50. And most of those 50 actually we don't find in houses. And so most of the stuff you encounter, totally harmless, you know, never ever been studied, might benefit you every day and we'd have no idea. One of the fascinating things about microbiology right now is there's a debate between people who think there might be millions of species of bacteria and people who think there might be trillions. 
And the take home for me from that debate is we're so ignorant that nobody can win that fight and no one will win it for a long time. And so, you know, everything's alive. It's alive with this incredible diversity. And we're still early days of figuring it out. You do point out that there are some species of bacteria and viruses that are harmful. You're not saying that everything should be embraced, all creatures great and small. Some of them we do need to um, stay away from. No, that's right. I mean, the relatively simple public health measures save hundreds of millions of lives a year. And so washing your hands to get whatever, you know, most recently colonizes your hands off your hands, uh, getting vaccinated, making sure we have drinking water that doesn't have pathogens in it. All these sorts of things are hugely beneficial and keep civilization standing. But those measures are all really targeted toward this teeny subset of species. And most of the other species either are harmless or, or beneficial, and in many cases can help us to actually ward off some of those things we don't like. But I think there are a lot of simple things that you can do to change which species you're exposed to. And so you can open your windows. You can make more fermented foods. You can wash your hands with soap and water, but not antimicrobials. You can steer clear, especially of like the antimicrobial underpants that seem to make some crazy funk in your junk. Um, (laughs) uh, And in the longer run, I think, I mean, one of the things that we see again and again is when we look at people's bodies, that the microbes on your body reflect how and where you've lived. And so the, the other way I've started to think about this is, like, what story would I like my kids' microbes to tell about how they've lived, about where they've lived, about their home, about their relationship with food, about their relationship with biodiversity? Rob Dunn is professor of applied ecology at North Carolina State University, and he'll share more about the multitude that share our homes with us later in the show. Okay, now that I know what I'm getting into and I have nothing to fear, I'm ready for the shower. Well, Molly, do you feel cleaner now, uh, or do you feel like you're covered in all those microbes that came out of the, you know, the, the, the shower head there? No, I do feel clean, and I am not bothered by what is coming out of the shower head. All that stuff coming out of the shower head, and you think of it in terms of germs, but that's a, that's a new meaning. I mean, germs, it comes from the Latin, you know, like germinated just means something that produces life. But we associate germs with disease, and these microbes, I mean... They don't all cause disease. The majority of them don't cause disease. In fact, the chances that, you know, you have a disease-causing microbe mixed in with that, uh, with that shampoo, it seems pretty low. Well, as he said, only 50 species of bacteria worldwide are of concern. Uh, there are many millions more that you don't have to worry about at all. They're obviously hardy if they can live in a shower head or in the pipes there. Here's one part of your house that you figure is clean. I mean, you probably don't figure your kitchen is clean, your bathroom's probably not so clean, the basement's certainly not clean, but your shower stall, come on, you've got tiles, you scrub it every week, right? It's all chrome-plated. It must be clean, but apparently it's not. You scrub your tile every week? Well, uh, I yes, I have somebody scrub my tile every week. I make my brother do that. Okay. Well, we're not quite that vigilant, but yes, the point is is that life is everywhere. And and what Dr. Dunn is pointing to is a bigger picture that we're really in the early days of figuring out the number and diversity of microorganisms and we're finding them in places that still astonish us. If life can adapt and thrive in your hot water pipes, where else can it be living? Grab a parka, northeastern Siberia, here we come. The title is enigmatic, but you're about to wake up to its meaning. It's Rip Van Winkle Worm on Big Picture Science.
From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. We've been talking in this episode of Big Picture Science about life's ability to adapt to seemingly barren, inhospitable environments. Bacteria thriving under conditions of alternatively hot water and no water is one example. Unrelentingly, bitterly cold temperatures is another. It was under such conditions that Russian researchers recently discovered these guys. What they found were some nematodes, which are little tiny roundworms, in the permafrost in the Arctic. Tiny worms in the permafrost is kind of neat, but it's not unusual. Worms are everywhere. But there's more. These guys were really chilled out. They were frozen, basically. So tiny frozen worms buried in the Arctic. But it's when they were buried. Let's put it this way. These worms might have coexisted with Neanderthals. And the assumption was from various geological sorts of analyses that they were frozen for roughly 40,000 years. I sense that there's more to this discovery of ancient frozen worms, and I'm just waiting for the other snowshoe to drop. And it's this. The worms were frozen, but they weren't dead. After warming up for two weeks in a Russian Petri dish, they started wriggling. 40,000-year-old life brought back to life? That's, um, you know what, that's a whole other can of worms. Keep in mind that these are not single-celled microbes, but much more complex organisms. And they've set a record for the time an animal that complex can survive being frozen. Of course, contamination is a concern. Maybe they're not 40,000 years old, but modern worms that somehow burrowed into the ice. Well, probably not. The worms were found between 10 and 100 feet down, deep enough in the permafrost where they would have been protected from seasonal melting. They were frozen solid in their little wormy tracks all that time. Well, let's hear more from a scientist whose job it is to consider the possibility of finding life where we don't expect it. And that means going to NASA. I'm Lynn Rothschild. I'm an astrobiologist and synthetic biologist at NASA's Ames Research Center. Lynn, first, how do we know these reanimated worms really are 40,000 years old? I mean, we can't ask them. (laughs) You can try asking them. But what you can do is to look a little bit about other sorts of geological data. So, for example, looking at isotope data, because all sorts of minerals decay over time. So that's how we do some dating way back to literally billions of years ago on planet Earth. And then depending upon which isotopes you're looking at, you can get much finer resolution, much more recent. So there's that kind of information. And then there were also organisms buried with them that would be typical of that period of time. 40,000 years ago. That's That's very long. Yeah, that's a long time to be, you know, in the ice and not really enjoying life. (laughs) Exactly. Now, we do know of a lot of organisms that can survive long periods of time, either dried or very cool. So, for example, we even freeze, of course, human sperm and human embryos for periods of time, but not 40,000 years. It would be very, very difficult to get funding for an experiment that went for 40,000 years. I I think your funding would run out before you. Finish the experiment. <laughs> Thirty-nine thousand, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, now we're talking about worms. But these are not the kind of worms that you would put on a fish hook, are they? No. Um, actually, many animals in the world are worms. It's a very successful body plan, just sort of long with a mouth at one end and an anus at the other. What you normally find in your garden that you're thinking of as a worm, an earthworm, is actually a totally different phylum of organisms. But what we're talking about here are little roundworms, and they are related to things like tapeworms, and there are many of them in many environments. In fact, my recollection from my own college days is if you removed everything else on planet Earth, every other living organism, and just left the nematodes, you could see the outlines of pretty much everything that had already been there. They are all over the place. Oh, oh okay. You could see nematodes. The, you could see yeah. the outlines of all the of of the organisms that had been there, the plants and the animals and the rocks and the you know so on, because there are nematodes all over the place. 
In other words, when it comes to multicellular organisms... They're all over. Okay. Now, my understanding of what happened here is that uh, once they dug up this permafrost and realized there were some worms in it, nematodes, let me say, uh, they put them in a Petri dish and wait a couple of weeks, uh, after which the worms start to move around. Uh, they give them some worm food or whatever in that yeah. Petri dish. Uh, why Why did they even do that? Because normally when you dig up something that's 40,000 years old, you're not expecting it to come back. I mean, nobody digs up you know, folks from the local cemetery and gives them hamburgers <laughs> in the hope that they'll come back to life. I, I certainly hope not. Although people have done similar sorts of things looking for, for example, bacteria that have been preserved in salt. And there have been reports of bacteria that they think are as old as maybe even 25 million years old, so vastly older than this permafrost. And of course, people are now very interested in bringing back genes from organisms that have been frozen in permafrost, for example, finding parts of mammoths and bringing them back to life, um, inserting some of these genes into elephant genes, maybe and bringing back some kind of, of hybrid mammoth elephant. Um, in fact, I know people are being funded to do that right now. So it's not an unreasonable thing, and this is a group that does work in the Arctic. Um, my understanding from the paper is that they suspected that there were worms in there, and they brought it back to the Russian Academy, taking all the normal precautions that they would take so that these plates would not be contaminated. It's not like they found an ice cube and they stuck it in their back pocket and got home and, you know, oh my goodness, there's something wriggling in a Petri dish. There was a suspicion, and so they said that they followed their standard protocol to bring it back and isolated these things. And so we're able to see populations start to develop from these. So what they do is they take literally little wells and they stick one in each well and, you know, their little worm solitary confinement. And when they were starting to wriggle, they gave them a little something to eat and they started dividing. Okay. Now, my understanding from having heard about freezing humans, something that's popular in certain quarters, is that the fundamental problem is that when you freeze a cell, the water in the cell breaks the cell walls because ice, you know, takes up more space than the water from which it was generated. And so, you know, you don't come back because all your cell walls are destroyed. How did these exactly. worms manage it's, this? It's sort of like making little ice swords and you're, you're popping through a, a water-filled balloon. And so you're breaking it. But the other thing that happens is during freezing, you get uh, what's known as dehydration reaction. So if you have water that has salt in it, it's going to freeze at a different temperature than pure water. So as something like a cell, which has salts and so on in it, starts to freeze, it's the pure water that freezes out first. And so what they think here is it's some sort of combination of drying. We do know organisms like tardigrades, for example, water bears, that will dehydrate. And there are other organisms that will do that. So they'll lose a lot of their water. In the case of tardigrades, it's something like 75% or so of their body water when they go into these anhydrobiotic states. So they're able to survive long periods of time. Here it's slightly different. Um, it's more like organisms that live in high salt where they produce different sorts of solutes to keep them from freezing. There was a paper 2017 from the British Antarctic Survey that did more molecular work looking at freezing in nematodes, and they were showing changes in gene regulation and so on. When people ask you, well, what about uh, bigger animals? I mean, does this happen to them as well? You know, something the size of a frog or, for that matter, even a, a real bear, not a you know, water bear. <laughs> <laughs> well, frogs actually are very interesting because frogs that live in temperate climates where it freezes in the the winter, you know, for example, I'm I'm from Connecticut, that's a place where this sort of thing happens. You have frogs that overwinter under the ice, and, and some of them actually can freeze solid and come back in the spring. Now, you can't just take a frog in the middle of July, stick it in the freezer, and expect it to jump across the table when you defrost it. They have to go through physiological changes that allow them to freeze solid. And the presumption is these worms would have to, too. Now, again, there's some question whether they could actually freeze solid or whether they've stayed in some kind of hydrated state during this time period and just really like it cold. I think there were a lot of questions raised by this report, but very exciting possibilities as well. Finally, Lynn, what are the implications of discovering a 42,000-year-old slumbering worm for astrobiology, for the search for life beyond Earth? 
Well, first of all, anyone who is searching for life beyond Earth needs as much data as possible. And the only place we have real data at this point is planet Earth. And so anything we can learn about evolution on planet Earth by bringing back extinct creatures and comparing them to modern ones, that gives us some idea. But it also helps reassure us that if we found some icy deposits elsewhere in our solar system, we can think of plenty of places that have icy deposits in our solar system, whether you're talking about an icy moon like Europa around Jupiter or Enceladus around Saturn, or even now we know Pluto's got ice on it and so on, that if there had been life there, maybe there's something that's still alive that is actually somehow surviving in that ice. Lynn Rothschild. Thank you so very much for speaking with us. Thank you, Seth. Lynn Rothschild is an astrobiologist and a synthetic biologist at NASA Ames Research Center. Okay, ready for a quiz? There are an estimated 5 million trillion trillion bacteria living on planet Earth. So where do you think most of them hang out? In the gut biome of this guy? All have the cabbage kimchi, a bowl of yogurt, and a beer, if it's fermented locally. If not, just bring me your finest kombucha. Or on the Motel TV remote? Hey, honey, uh, would you mind changing the channel for me? Those spots are indeed thriving locales for bacteria, but scientists have discovered a more popular locale where their real digs are. I'm Karen Lloyd. I'm an environmental microbiologist and associate professor at the University of Tennessee, and I'm interested in life that is buried deep within Earth's crust. She and other scientists from the Deep Carbon Observatory, a worldwide consortium of about 1,000 research scientists, are reporting that the majority of the world's bacteria are underground. The discovery of Rip Van Winkle worms was a surprise, but so too is that of zombie microbes, the nickname for slowly reproducing organisms that have adapted to conditions once thought inhospitable. The microbes are members of a deep biosphere, and their population is not insignificant. Underground bacterial life outnumber their surface counterparts. Karen, let's try and set the scene here. Roughly speaking, how much life is there down there? Well, we estimate, just comparing the total number of microbial cells on the planet, that about 70% of all the microbial cells on Earth live underground. 70%? Yeah, so the majority. The total number of microbes in the subsurface biosphere is equivalent to about hundreds of times the total carbon contained in the human population. So that puts it sort of in perspective. So, you know, if you wiped all the people out, then the amount of carbon impact we would make on the Earth would be far less than if you wiped out all the deep subsurface microbes. My goodness. But isn't it true, Karen, that, you know, even years ago, I remember reading stories about the fact that if I were to dig a hole in my backyard, say, a mile deep, and, and then pull up the muck that I find at the bottom of that hole, look at it under a microscope, I would see some sort of microbe, some sort of bacteria in that muck. I mean, what's new? Well, I think that the first discovery of life deep within the Earth was the Taylorsville Basin in the 80s, I want to say. So it hasn't been all that well known. And in fact, less than 100 years ago, there was hypothesized to be an azoic zone in the oceans. People thought that there was a depth in the oceans you couldn't go past and still find life. But to put together all this research happening from all around the world is the only way to get at this question of how much life is down there and how big of a deal is it? Is this a side note? Is it just kind of like the occasional cell that got trapped down there? And what we're seeing from the culmination of all these different people doing all this different work all over the world is that this is not a side note. This is actually a really normal mode for life on Earth. And we should be thinking of it as equivalent to the sort of importance of surface life. Well, well, describe for me what kind of life is down there. I mean, is it all sort of unicellular life, you know, little tiny bacteria-like things? Yeah, pretty much. Um, there's some evidence for some animals. There's a nematode that's been found in some deep South African gold mines, and even that is very, very small. So remember that water is in the tiny, tiny cracks, so um, there's not a ton of energy available from chemosynthesis. So this life tends to be single-celled. Uh, how deep a hole have we dug? I mean, we, we haven't dug any holes that are 10 miles deep, have we? I mean, how do we know what's down that deep? Well, the deepest hole ever dug is not totally relevant for the question of 
biosphere because uh, to dig a hole and to get biology out of it, you have to be very, very careful that you don't contaminate what's down there. I mean, this has really been the struggle of deep subsurface biology since people started looking for this stuff in the 80s. The deepest hole where people have really gotten a sterile, good sample where they know that it wasn't contamination is about 2.5 kilometers under the ocean and about 5 kilometers on land. Currently, we think that what limits how deep life can go into the Earth is temperature above which the molecules or the cells start to fall apart. So we don't really know what that temperature is precisely, but it leaves a lot of space to work with. What's, what's it like down there? Well, life in continental subsurfaces exists in some usually small fractures because we know that life needs liquid water to function. So there can be tiny, tiny little fractures in rock or there could be standing aquifer systems. There's plenty of places for life to hide. Presumably, of course, it would be dark. It would be dark. There would be a little bit of moisture and there'd be all this rock. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Would I smell anything? I guess I wouldn't smell anything, right? Yeah. No, you would smell something. Yeah, it would smell really terrible because a lot of the deepest life that we found produces sulfide, which smells like rotten eggs. All right. That sounds pretty inhospitable to life, uh, in particular the lack of light because when I think about it, you know, I eat a hamburger, but that was really produced by photosynthesis, you know, some plant that a cow ate, but there's not a whole lot of photosynthesis down deep in the earth, is there? Yeah, to sort of get your head around all the life that exists in the deep subsurface, you have to remember that the sun is only one potential form of energy source for life on Earth. The other source is actually the Earth itself and the chemicals that it produces. And so there's many, many different types of microbes that can take chemical energy and convert it into biomass the same way that plants take the sun's energy and convert that into biomass. Now, one of the things about living deep below the surface is that you're living life in the slow lane. Uh, how slow is it? I mean, you know, what's the lifestyle if you're, you're a tiny worm down there or a bacterium or something? So if you can imagine how you measure a growth rate of something that only doubles once every 30 years, it's pretty much impossible with all the methods that we know how to do it with. So we don't know the answer super precisely because we have to estimate it. But currently, that's about the fastest that people have estimated in some of these environments that the total biomass regenerates itself is about 30 years. Some people say more like hundreds of years. The way they live is so extraordinary compared to how we live here on our fast surface. And uh, how did this life get down there? I mean, you take, take, take your random bacterium here off, off my kitchen sink and, and put it on the ground. It isn't going to go, you know, a couple of miles down. I mean, how, how does this life get started down there? Well, they might have been born down there. We don't know where life originated. It's possible that all our parents were from down there. Really? In other words, life on Earth could have originated not in some warm little pond a la Chucky Darwin, but it could have originated deep under the surface? It's a possibility. There are places in the deep earth where a water-rock reaction provide pretty much all you need for life to go. And it's a great place to hang out if the surface of your planet is getting bombarded with asteroids. Finally, Karen, one of the big uh, developments in science in the past 10 or 20 years is rewriting the tree of life. Does any of this subsurface biota uh, imply that we've got to rewrite it again, or is, does it all fit? Hmm. Yeah, we subsurface, deep subsurface biologists and surface biologists and all kinds of biologists, or I guess mostly microbiologists, are rewriting the tree all the time. Every time we start to put together new genomes or we develop a new technology that allows us to get new genomes, we think, oh man, we totally missed that group. And we had never knew they were there before. And then we spend a lot of time trying to figure out where exactly they branch and um, it's definitely a subject of a lot of debate, but we know that life is very diverse and getting more diverse as we look harder and harder. Karen Lloyd, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Sure, thanks for having me. Karen Lloyd, an environmental microbiologist and associate professor at the University of Tennessee, sharing with us the discovery that life underground is not rare, but plentiful. You know, the underground biosphere, like the worms frozen in the permafrost, suggests where we might look for life off of Earth if you can dig it. We hope that you're adjusting faster than the metabolism of a zombie microbe to the idea that the earth beneath you teems with life. Adjusted yet? Because things are more crowded than you think. 
There's a great little wasp that we find in lots of houses, and it specializes in laying its eggs in the egg cases of some kinds of cockroaches. Coming up, the crawling, jumping, and thriving circus of critters that are grateful to you for putting a roof over their little antennae heads and that you didn't know were there. It's Rip Van Winkle Worm on Big Picture Science. been talking in this episode of Big Picture Science about the astonishing ability of life to adapt to the most challenging or surprising environment. And this next environment will hit closer to home because it is your home. A glance at your living room confirms the identity of two other household members, your spouse and the dog. But those are only the known occupants. Ecologist Rob Dunn is profoundly changing our relationship to our homes by revealing just what lives there. And as he notes, there are at least 100,000 species of bacteria. Some of them are a little surprising, like the residents of our shower plumbing we heard about, but many others are familiar, bodily bacteria, and they spread throughout our homes due to the awkward fact that our bodies are slowly falling apart, says Dr. Dunn. A passage from his book, Never Home Alone. We leave a cloud of life everywhere we go. As we wander through our homes, our skin flakes off in a process called disquamation. We all fall apart at a rate of about 50 million flakes a day. Each flake floating through the air has thousands of bacteria living and feeding on it. Riding their skin flake parachutes, these bacteria fall from us like a steady snow. We also leave bacteria on the bits of bodily fluids, saliva and more, and feces deposited here and there. As a result, the places where we spend time in our homes bear the marks of our presence. Every place we put our bodies and every house we have ever studied offers microbial evidence of lives lived. No sooner have we adjusted to the idea that bacteria are on us and in us and populate our homes, Dr. Dunn reveals that that's not the half of it. The subtitle of his book, From Microbes to Millipedes, Camel Crickets and Honeybees, The Natural History of Where We Live, suggests the waving antenna and mandibles of a whole lot more. Through a series of first-ever studies, his team has identified more than a 1,000 insect species and their relatives living with us. Yeah, despite being an insect enthusiast, Dr. Dunn and his research team were astonished by how many insects turned up during their first surveys of homes in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I would say, like, if you would have asked me 10 years ago how many species we would find if we sampled exhaustively 50 houses, I would have said not very many. And when we started this project, we had a clue that that might be wrong, but our colleagues thought it was right. And in fact, most of our colleagues thought sampling the arthropods in houses was the dumbest and most boring thing we'd ever thought of. But, but we, went, we went in, and in the first 50 houses, we found at least 1,000 species of insects and their relatives, and probably more like 2,000. Counting in these cases is tricky. And initially, we thought, well, maybe those are still a lot of things that are just blowing in. But the more we look, the more that many, many of these species were actually adapted for living with us in our homes and had traveled around the world with us and really relate to us in very specific ways. And it sort of opened up a giant world of things to follow up on that we're still sort of immersed in. Let's say more about where you found them and, and what exactly you found, because when you say a thousand species, that conjures up an image of walking into a room and seeing nothing but bugs. But when I walk into a room in our house, it's it's pretty clean. There's the occasional fly and spider, but certainly I'm not seeing a thousand species of insects dancing about. Yeah, so that was, I mean, it was sort of my feeling, too, was that if you, when we looked in a few houses before we started sampling, and you look around, you don't see very much. The room I'm in right now, I don't see anything around me right now. But if you start to look in corners, and then you look in windowsills, and then you look in light fixtures, that there are more small and inconspicuous species than you think. And then the other thing that happens as you look in more detail is that two things that superficially seem the same turn out to be eight things. And so when I first looked in my own house, I was pretty sure I had two common house spiders in my house. And 
when we really looked, there were something like eight species of spiders in my house. And I had no idea. And this is my house. I'm super interested in life indoors. And so that's the other piece. You may see two spiders in a room and you think, well, that one's the parent and this is the next generation. Turn out to be two species that are 80 million years separated. And then the other thing, and we started to work with students on this, is if you really start to look, even right in front of you, there's more than you think there might be. That there are teeny, teeny things that maybe part of your brain registers, but your conscious brain isn't paying attention to. And so book lice are these tiny little insects, but they're visible. And if we asked entomologists how many houses we'd find book lice in, and people thought they were now very rare, and we found them in every single house. And so this stuff's there. It's hiding around in the corners. It's flying around. There's a great little wasp that we find in lots of houses. And it doesn't sting people. It's a tiny wasp. And it specializes in laying its eggs in the egg cases of some kinds of cockroaches. And it's really common. And so this must be flying around our houses at night or, I mean, even during the day and doing its good service, and we just don't see it. One of the most memorable graphs in your book um, is entitled, Who Lives in Your Home? And it's a a roll call of the arthropods. So these are the insects. So never mind the the bacteria. We know there are a a lot of them. And this is listed in order of proportion. So the number one species, it's the fly, diptera. Yeah. Okay. So just to give people an idea of what's on here, there are beetles, there are moths, uh, there are mites and ticks, bees and wasps, cockroaches, lice, and the last one are crickets and grasshoppers. These are a lot of different kinds of insects in our homes. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. So if you think about it, there was an old British study where a guy who I would guess was not married did a study of his own mattress through time, and he just kept sampling his mattress. And he found you know, half a dozen species of mites living in his mattress, eating his dead skin. And then there was a second trophic level of mites eating those mites. And then there was a centipede that would kind of roam around that appeared to be eating the bigger mites. And so that was just in his pillow and mattress. It's a whole world around us. There's a particular time and space resolution that is called upon for us to see these creatures. So if you're just walking quickly through a room, you won't see them. But if you actually take the time to look at these corners, um, for example, I lifted up a plant and I looked at the plate underneath it for a little while, and then I saw two tiny, tiny little bugs walking around. They were different from each other. I wouldn't have noticed them, but that was their home under this plant, on this plate, on a table in our home. But, But you have to stop and look, don't you? You do have to stop and look, and our scale and their scale are so very different, both with regard to time and space, as you point out. And so when you lifted up that plant and you saw those two different bugs, you know, it's possible that they had an enormous population of each of those species in the potted plant. And that's a whole story into and of itself, but uh, we, we just miss it. Another example of insects living in surprising places are those drain flies that are in the sink. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, this is a group of insects that spread around the world, and we've only sort of noticed that it's happened. And I think lots of listeners will have seen them. They're teeny tiny flies, and they fly out of your drain. And what's happening is that their larvae are actually establishing in the drain itself and helping to break down the gunk in the drain. It's like the Drano you get for free, these flies. Now, none of this is strange if you look at our ancestral relationship with the outdoors and the evolution of the home. You point out that bathing, for one, is a recent thing. And long before that, we slept outdoors. We slept on the dirt. Um, But as we evolved and we became human, our homes evolved. We moved into simple caves and then rounded domes, you explain. And as we did that, as we built homes we began to alter the microbial and insect species even 20,000 years ago. And how did we do that? Well, so so a couple things happened. So one is that we start to seal off a little bit of outdoor nature, just a little bit initially. So if you think about cave life relative to life in a stick nest, a lot of the same things are still coming in, but, but not exactly the same things. And so you can sort of see that as, at least in the Western tradition, largely, uh, progressive in quotes in the sense that we get ever more sealed in. You know, first you have a cave with an opening and then you have a house with a window and or a door, but they don't seal. Eventually you have a door, you have a sealed window. 
And as that happens, more and more things are excluded. At the same time, the other thing that's going on then is that more and more species are figuring out evolutionarily that we're kind of a dependable place to live, you know? And so if, if they can figure out how to move in where we live, the conditions are a little bit different. And so we're favoring slowly a different set of species. And so one of my favorite examples of this is that in Amarna, Egypt, in 1350 BCE, before the Common Era, we see from archaeological sites many arthropod species that we also see in houses in Raleigh. And that's because those species moved into our houses really early in the history of, of homes and agriculture and have continued to move with us on ships as we've traveled. And so 1350 BCE sounds like a long time ago, but in the bigger history of mammals, of humanity even, it's yesterday. And so this is a whole new kind of thing in many ways. So life finds a way. And um, you write that uh, the evolution of species in our homes is the fastest occurring on Earth. It is. It is for a number of reasons. One is that if you think about the size of the indoor world we're creating, it's the most rapidly expanding biome on Earth. So the indoors is expanding as the Amazon is retreating, as, as many kinds of forests are retreating, but the indoors is getting bigger and bigger. And so nature loves habitats that are getting bigger and bigger. And so any species that can do well in that habitat can leave many offspring. And any of those offspring with genes that make them even better at living in that habitat do even better. At the same time, the other thing that we do to speed up evolution is that we use lots of biocides, so insecticides, antibiotics, antimicrobials, herbicides. And all of those disfavor a lot of life, but at the same time favor a subset of species or genes. And so they really speed up evolution. You know, if you go to the store in the aisle with all the killing stuff, many of the containers say kills 99% of insects or 99% of germs. That's like if you were to write out a recipe for how do I make evolution happen really fast and how do I make it favor species I don't want. Killing 99% is like the best way. And that's the key. You're favoring the, you're favoring the species that are tough and often they tend to be the troublemakers and you're just wiping out wiping out the harmless or the beneficial bacteria and, and insects in our homes and in our lives. Yeah, and you're wiping out all the competition for those tough species. I have a friend who works a lot on these sort of industrial pig farms. We have just, I mean, this horrible scene. But if you look at those great big pig farms, one of the places that he's finding lots of bacteria that are super antibiotic resistant is on the really clean floors that are bleached all the time. And what he thinks is happening is that on those floors, those resistant bacteria, which don't survive very well if there's not much antibiotic, they can hang out because all their competition is gone. And so they just hang out there and wait for something to colonize that happens by. And so the same kind of thing in a less extreme setup is happening in our houses. You know, Rob, what's delightful about your description of your studies is not just the new worlds that are opening up to us as we understand uh, the role of these microbes and these insects in our lives. But it's the sheer enthusiasm and admiration that you have for this diversity of life. And can you describe, say, more about why you're in awe of these small creatures? I think part of my awe is childlike in the sense that I grew up surrounded by nature and fascinated by nature. And when I was a kid, you know, a lot of what I would have seen outdoors around my house in Michigan were actually new phenomena that nobody would noticed, but I didn't know they were new. And so when I went to college and started to become interested in biology, I thought I needed to go to the farthest place to find new species and new phenomena. And so I spent most of my early career in rainforests. And over the last few years, I, I realized that many of the things that I could find in rainforests that we can find in homes, not the same species, but the same potential for new discovery. And that just sort of amazes me because it means that I'd missed these things my whole life and that everyone around the world is missing them. And th this possibility that if we could just sort of refocus people on the, the potential for discovery around them, that we could have wonder-filled lives. And so that, that captivates me in, in a really deep and personal way. Well, Rob Dunn, thank you so much for helping us see our homes in a whole new way. Thank you so much. It's been great to be on the show. 
Rob Dunn is a professor of applied ecology at North Carolina State University and at the Natural History Museum at the University of Copenhagen. He is the author of Never Home Alone, From Microbes to Millipedes, Camel Crickets and Honeybees, The Natural History of Where We Live. Well, it sounds like our houses are an evolutionarily advancing bestiary. I mean, we're getting more and more different species in our homes because they've become an important environment, apparently, for a lot of critters. That's right. There are all these ecosystems. We think of there being ecosystems around the around the world, right? You have the tundra, you have the beaches, desert, and you have those in your home as well. It might be your drain, your your shower pipes, under your bed, the windowsill. So that's the big picture of this show. But, you know, Molly, this is the continuation of a long-running movie. Life is plastic, and there just are very few habitats that can't colonize some part of it. You know, there would have been a time when we would have described these bacteria living underground as extremophiles, (laughs) living deep down in the dark uh, without any sunlight. But because the vast majority of them are underground, uh, that suggests that the extremophiles are really the ones that live on the surface. Yeah, that's right. Your your favorite bacterial friends, they're in the minority, I guess, and they're the extremophiles. But one thing that it does suggest that appeals to me is the fact that if we went six miles under the surface of Venus, no life on the surface of Venus, it's too hot, but maybe six miles under, it could be teeming with life, especially if life can get started underground. Thanks to the resilient members of our Big Picture Science production team, senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, and operations manager Barbara Vance. I'm executive producer Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including the formation of our solar system. I'm Seth Shostak, the SETI Institute senior astronomer. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to an episode of Big Picture Science called Rip Van Winkle Worm. And if you want to hear more of our show, you'll find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. You may be listening to our radio show, but if you want BiPiSci to better conform to your gusto-grabbing lifestyle, why not subscribe to the BiPiSci podcast? That way you'll never miss an episode. You'll find links on our website to the platforms that carry us. <laughs>